0: This is Pastor Matt Harmless, and thank you for listening to Edgewood Sermon Audio. This is a standalone sermon uh, from Pastor Paul Fuller, dealing with idols of the heart, from Isaiah chapter 44. Good morning. Normally I'm preaching through Joshua, but I am the next section of the text in Joshua is a text that I need some time to study through (laughs) Um, because it's it'd be one of those passages that you would normally be reading your Bible reading. You start flipping the pages to get to where it gets good again, it feels like. It's this tribe got this section of land and this tribe got this section of land and this tribe for seven chapters. (laughs) And I'm like, and, and if you remember, as you've listened to me preach through Joshua, I always try to point out, like, how does this text point us to Jesus, right? Because Jesus said that all of the Old Testament points to him. Well, looking at those land things, that's the question in my head. How does this point to Jesus? So I'm going to study that for a month (laughs) and think that through. And so today, though, uh, God has a message for us from the book of Isaiah, We're looking at Isaiah 44, and I want you to turn there. Thank you. I'm going to need this. I will have the text above us on the overhead, but um, if you can have it in front of you, I think you're going to find it advantageous to you. Let's go to the Lord and pray. God, we are so thankful for the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus gave himself up for us, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve, was buried and was raised to conquer death for us. And your spirit gives to us that resurrection life, that freedom from sin, the freedom to worship you, the freedom to be able to worship you instead of anything else that we think is going to make us happy. And yet we struggle. We've struggled this week. We've chased after other lovers less wild. God, we need a reminder, a fresh reminder that you are the God who is worthy of all praise. You are the God that we can revere. You are the God who we can trust. You are the God who we can fear and love. And you are the God who really, truly will fill us Would you help us this morning to see this truth from your word? God, would you, by your spirit, open our ears to hear what you would hear, want us to hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read to you this quote from a mathematician and philosopher from the 1500s, 1600s. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and the others of avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will your wanter, never takes the least step but to this object. In other words, you're always going after what you think will make you happy, avoiding what won't make you happy. That's what he's saying there. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Think about that those who would seek to end their life are still seeking happiness because they're wanting to avoid some kind of pain. Everyone longs for happiness. And this longing for happiness drives what we worship. This morning I want us to help us see that we have what I would call a worship disorder. The DSM-5 lists hundreds of disorders. Interestingly, they all can be encompassed by this one disorder called a worship disorder. There are things that our hearts cling to because we believe they're going to give us happiness. We believe that they're going to deliver on their promises. And when we have our eyes off of Christ and set on whatever else it is, we're deluded, we're tricked, and we are prone to wander as we know this, right? We know it even this week. I know it. My mind wanders off of the cross, off of the one who fills me, but God's word for us has hope. That's what we're going to see in Isaiah 44. God will give us grace by his spirit through the word because that's the work that he does to help us turn from idols, these idols that lurk about in our hearts, and God will help us find real joy and true satisfaction in himself as we see his glory revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So in our text this morning, we're going to see four directions. In Isaiah 44, we're going to see four directions to help us find lasting satisfaction in Christ. This text will lay out four ways for us to find lasting satisfaction in Christ. So let's just start off with verses 6 through 8 and read that. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, I, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? So the first direction that we're going to see in this text today is to revere the God of your salvation, to revere the God of your salvation. That word revere, reverence, we get that from that, to show great honor for. We need to show great honor to the God of our salvation. And you can see it in this text that he gives us so many reasons why we should honor him. Because look at this, he says right out of the gate, Thus says the Lord. That's Yahweh, his covenant name. He says he's the king of Israel. It says he is the redeemer. It says that he's the Lord of hosts. That means he's the captain of the armies of heaven. That's what that means. He says, I'm the first and the last. That means no one came before him. No one will come after him. And he says, there's no God besides me. That means there's nobody that rivals his power. There's no one that's higher than him. There is no God like him. And then he says in verse 7, who is like me? And when he says, let him proclaim and declare it, it's like him coming to the courtroom and saying, I'm putting myself on trial here. Bring forth your witnesses who can show, bring forth someone who can rival me. And what does he find? He finds an empty courtroom because no one can bring any God to the table that can rival him. No one shows up. And then in verse eight, he says to not fear, do not tremble, do not be afraid. It's God's saying, you don't have to be afraid because I'm greater than all that you fear. Anything you can think of that you're wrestling with for fears, God's saying, I'm bigger than that. I'm greater than that. That's what he's saying right there. To Israel and to us today, you don't have to be afraid because I'm greater than all that you fear. You can trust me, he's saying. Because I am the source of what you're longing for. In this passage today, God's speaking to us just as he did through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. This was written to the people of Israel way back, around 500, 600 BC. I did that backwards, 600, 500, actually probably a little bit 700s. The people of Israel had witnessed God's great power Right? Even in the book of Joshua, we're seeing over and over God displaying his great power. And they had seen that there was no God higher than him. And they needed to be reminded. That's why this passage was here. Now, the whole time before even the book of Joshua, they're wandering in the wilderness. And in that wandering time, they saw that he provided food for them, he kept their cattle alive. He made their clothes to not wear out. He caused their wombs to bring forth children. They saw in an utterly desolate place in that wilderness that he provides for their every need. And then they came into this land that we've been seeing in the book of Joshua, this pagan land where people were sacrificing their children to gods, not him. And instead of doing, or we're seeing this, I'm kind of revealing near the end of, book of the book of Joshua what happens. Instead of doing exactly what God told them to do, of wiping them out, to remove the idolatry from the land, the people of Israel end up just settling in. And over time, they forgot about the wilderness, they forgot about that time that they had intimacy with God when he provided for every need they had. And what did they do? They start marrying the people in that land and worshiping their gods. And Isaiah warns in this chapter to Israel, you must stop this idolatry. They had forgotten all that God had done for them and promised to continue to do for them if they would just obey him. And they had replaced Yahweh with Baal, with Asherah. They replaced Yahweh, the creator and sustainer, the king of the universe, with gods that are not gods. And instead, trusting in those idols. And we look at that, you and I look at that, that, that craziness to go from a God who can split the sea, make water come out of rocks, give bread from heaven, and quails just appear in the middle of the wilderness, We've, and then they turn to something else. And we say, that's crazy. Why would you turn away from a God who would do all of that for you to this, whatever, nothingness? We think it's craziness, don't we? We do the same thing. We do the same thing. We see that cross right there, and we are reminded that he lived and died for me and gives me hope eternal. And then I think I'm going to find happiness in Ben and Jerry's. God's telling you today to look to him. That's what he's telling Israel, and he's telling us to not just simply say, oh, the wonderful cross with my mouth, but to believe it in our hearts that God is the one who can be trusted he can be trusted. Look at this verse again. I've listed out everything he says in these, those verses there. It says he's the Lord. He's the King of Israel. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the first and the last. There is no God beside him. He's established ancient nations. He has declared the things that are to come. We are his witnesses. There is no God beside him. There is no rock we know of none. That's the God we're called to revere. That's the God we're called to revere, the God of our salvation. That's the first direction God wants us to see in these first three verses. The next direction we're going to see is to recognize the absurdity of your idolatry, to recognize the absurdity of it. So I want you to try to imagine this next story that's in the text here verses 9 through 19. I'm just going to read part of it and then jump down a little bit. There's a lot here. But it's very visual. So if you can kind of even maybe close your eyes and listen and put on your thinking caps. It says, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. And I'm jumping down a few verses. A man cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, cuts down that tree, sets it on fire, and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, <laughs> he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over that half, he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself says, ah, I'm warm, I am warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it, and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. If it wasn't so sad it'd be funny. <laughs> it's 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 so strange. Let's say, I mean there's supposed to be thunderstorms again today. Let's say that the power gets knocked out and we're all, you know, trapped for some reason on this property and we go out here and cut down some of these trees and do the same thing. We we set a fire, we're able to keep warm, cook some food, we can keep surviving. And then we say to each other, you know, this wood is so useful. We, let's worship it because if we do that, maybe it'll continue to provide us more wood and, and more fire that we need. That's just ridiculous, isn't it? it it's, it's absurd. And that's the whole point that Isaiah is trying to make here for you. That's absurdity. And this text helps us see a downward spiral of idolatry. It doesn't happen all at once. It helps us see that. So look at verse 17. The rest of it, he makes into a god. The first thing you need to see about idolatry is that you make it. You choose what this idol is. It's not thrust upon you. There's no one forcing you to misdirect your worship of God. You choose what it is that you want. And this guy made his idol, and we do too. We choose what we're going to worship. And next to the text, it says he falls down to it. Falling down to it is submitting yourself to it, right? Putting yourself under it so that it is above you, you are submitting to it. That's what it means to fall down. He puts himself in a position where it has authority over his life. Can you picture the things in your own life that you struggle with, and you feel like you don't have any control? Like it has control over you? Like it has the authority? Somehow you've submitted yourself to that thing, and now it has control. It has authority. But remember, you made it. You picked it. You chose it. And then you say, I'm yours. So the second thing you see in this spiral is that you submit to it. First, you're the one making it. You're picking it. Now you submit to it. The next thing we see in the text is he worships it. He prays to it. Now, what we say we're doing here on Sunday mornings is worship. We call that worship. Not just the singing, the giving, the preaching. is all acts of worship. What is it? What is that? What does it mean? He worships. Worship is where we're giving adoration. We're giving honor. We're giving respect. Gratitude. Actually, primarily Submission. something. Worship is giving submission to something, giving the credit that it's due. This morning, we're here, right, to give God the credit he's due. That's why we get together, because we know in our hearts and our minds, God is the one to whom all credit is due. And we want to utter that with our mouth and our hearts. That is worship, giving God the credit he's due. But now think about it. This piece of wood that this dude has cut down and set on fire, and then the other party forms into a little man. Does it deserve any credit? (laughs) Does the, the, the little man deserve any credit at all? What did it do? What did the wood do? Can it see? Can it hear? Can it even talk? What credit does a block of wood deserve? But that's what we do. We give credit to it. We worship it. That's the next step in this downward spiral. You worship it. You give it the credit that you think it's due. Now, that last part of verse 17 is where it really gets interesting. He says, deliver me, for you are my God. Deliver me. Here's the key to idolatry, folks, right here. We believe it will deliver on its promise. Whatever it is that you have that your heart turns away from Christ towards, and we'll get into this a little bit, you believe that it promises something to you. It will give you something, and you believe that it'll actually do that. You think that it'll deliver on its promises, If you were this man, you would have believed that this idol represents some kind of God who would continue to keep you warm, and that that God will continue to grow other little trees, and that's where fire somehow comes from, because an idol gives us or has something that we want. We believe that its ends will produce happiness and satisfaction. But verse 9 makes it clear. Well, I'd have to go back. All who fashion, it says right there, and you can see in your text, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. The idols don't deliver a profit. Our idols don't deliver the goods. We think so, because we keep chasing after them. Like, I got a little taste of it. But it's, it's, it's like constantly chasing it. It's almost like that scene in the, the Shining where they're going down the hallway, and it keeps going, and you're like, I think I can get there, I think I can get there, and I keep running, and then there's these scary little girls. Wait a second. <laughs> we, we often think, though, in our minds, when we read these kind of passages, our minds go to, well, when I lived in Louisville, um, we got the opportunity to go to a, a Hindu temple, And they have inside there figurines, right? And we saw these monk guys coming out and setting out this spread of food for it. It was amazing, like beautiful. And they'd wash it. They'd they'd caress the idol. It was odd. That's where our minds go, right, with idols? That's what we think. But here's the thing. Idols, we know they're an object of worship. But they don't have to be a thing that you can touch. They're often not even tangible things. Because worship really is about what we submit ourselves to. It's about whatever it is that I submit myself to. It's what I live for. And the question then is, what do I live for? What we believe will bring us happiness. What I believe will bring me happiness, satisfaction, or peace is what we submit to. So you need to think in your head, what do I think is going to bring happiness, satisfaction, or peace? And you're in the church auditorium this morning. I know your mind goes to Jesus because you know that's the right answer. But you're going to have to say to yourself, but what else do I try to find happiness in? And how much does that compete with Jesus? So how do we know if our worship, how do I know that I'm submitting to something else? How do I know that Jesus is not getting the credit he's due in my life, something else is? Let me give you three ways, simple ways to know if you've got an idolatry problem. And the reason I know this so well is because this is what I do, (laughs) okay? If you're willing to sin, In order to get something, then you've misdirected your worship. Like, okay, I know I'm not like going and doing illegal things or something to get what I want. I'm okay on that one. All right, next one, maybe. Or if you're willing to sin when you don't get what you want. How do you respond when your plans didn't go your way? like oh I'll trust you God. Pretty sure that's not how most of us naturally default react. And I react in sinful anger or worry or doubt and it starts to go like this. Well if God says don't be sinfully angry, don't have don't worry, trust me. If God says trust you, trust him and you're not doing it, well now you're sinning when you didn't get what you wanted. So third way. So first if I'm willing to sin in order to get what I want, If I sin when I don't get what I want, or, this is a fun one, if I sin when I get something I didn't want. Think about that. If I sin in response to getting something that I didn't want, Mark's talking about that this week, like, I didn't want this, whatever this is that you gave me, God. I don't know how you responded internally, but let's say he just, fine, forget it, and just just dives into the flesh. And we know we've got a worship issue going on. Any of those things, you know you're being ruled by what you want. So let me flesh it out a little bit more. Because it's still a little bit ethereal, I think, in our minds. And I can only skim the surface here. But I encourage you to really do some earnest reflection in your heart as I talk through this next kind of three ways that possibly you might fall into. It's only three possible ways because there's all kinds of other ways, right? What if, what thing, I mean, what thing in your life would you feel like giving up on life for if it was taken from you? Maybe there's something that's so precious to you that if that thing or that person was removed that you'd feel like quitting it's very possible that you have wrapped yourself around that thing or that person so much that that thing is now a God replacement for you what is it that so if I lost that I'd have a hard time following Jesus (laughs) about this? What about when you get to the end of your day and you say, this was a horrible day? Uh, Ask yourself, why do I say that that day was a horrible day? I'm not saying we don't have horrible days. Bad things happen to us, right? But what I'm asking you to do is think about what it is about that day that happened that causes me to assess it as a horrible day. Was it because it wasn't easy? It wasn't as comfortable as I had hoped? Was it because the plans that I had didn't happen? How you respond to the bad things that happen, how you respond will give you some insight into your soul. (laughs) So, for instance, when I realize that I'm not in control, I get angry with people. My temper may be short. I use my words to take out that frustration on other people. Or I have plans. I mean, we all have plans. I have plans for today. I want things to go the way I want them to, and when they don't, I sin. (laughs) I mean, we do. And when I do that, that's like a big red flag for me to say, hey, I think I've got a little idol going on. See, Calvin said, in our hearts, we've got this manufacturing plant. But you didn't know that. You've got this this manufacturing plant inside there that makes these idols. You're constantly producing them because you're going to be like, Jesus, coming back, because you're just so distracted by these things that you think will give you what you want. All right, third way that you may be able to uncover what is what are the things that I have a misdirected worship of? What do you obsess about? What do you you obsess about? Right, there you go. What do your conversations constantly revolve around? And maybe you're like, you're not sure. Well, ask your friends. Ask your spouse, what do you find, like, I'm always talking about? And you're less like, would you shut up about that thing? When we're obsessed about something, that kind of gives us some clues into what it is we really, really want in life, what drives us, what makes us tick, what we fear, right? And Donnie shouted out money. He's the honest one in the room right now, right? Like, I'm worried about not having the money. But Jesus says, you of little faith, if these sparrows can be provided for, and those are the garbage birds, by the way. (laughs) I did not learn that until recently. They're actually like the raccoons of the birds. Seriously, go look it up or ask my wife who's learned a lot about birds lately. Sparrows are the nasty ones. And Jesus says, if I'm going to provide for their needs, why are you worrying There's so much more. We could talk about money, right? We could talk about work. We could talk about pleasure. We could talk about peace or ambition or success. The list goes on and on about things that I chase after that I think are going to give me happiness, satisfaction, or peace that are not Jesus. But it comes down to this what are you looking for? What are you looking to for satisfaction? What's going to make you feel complete? And whatever that is, you believe it will deliver on its promises. What's interesting is in our passage in verse 20, Isaiah calls this absurdity feeding on ashes. Look at that, verse 20 of Isaiah 44. He's talking about the dude. He says, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We are so deluded that we don't even know that we're chasing these sometimes. We're feeding on ashes. Picture that in, my, in your mind. We've got a nice little fire ring out here in the back. Thursday night, maybe if it wasn't so hot, let's have a fire and then set up our tents. And the next morning we get up, we're going to have breakfast, and Gene goes out and gets a big bowl and scoops the ashes into it and comes out and starts to serve up ashes for you to eat. That's nasty. That's what he's saying. He feeds on ashes. He's looking for his satisfaction, that hunger in something that's like, right? Wow, what's with the horror movies in my head today? Like, you see these pictures of these horror movies and that stuff just coming out of the mouth? That's what it's like. It's nothingness. I don't even watch those movies that often. <laughs> This is absurd. Why? Because we have a God who's worthy of all praise, who can be relied on, who has never failed us, who sustains us, who reaches down and changes our cold, dead hearts to believe him, who sent his only son to save us, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, who has delivered on his promises. He has delivered on his promises. Our idols don't deliver on their promises, but he has. And we go and eat ashes. But I know that, I know that this introspection is painful. This is not fun stuff, is it? And, and recognizing the absurdity of our idolatry is not the only direction, though, that's in this text. You've got to see that he starts off with God, revere. I'm way behind. Revere the God of your salvation. We see that he sets himself out as the God who should be revered. And now he says, recognize the absurdity, but he goes on. He goes on, okay? Verse 21 says, boy, he says, Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel. For you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. The way that we will find real hope and real satisfaction is to remember these things. So what are these things he's referring to? He says, remember these things? Well, it could be what he's about to say in the text, but I think it's actually a conclusion. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, which I encourage you to do, Starting at verse chapter 40, at chapter 40 coming up to this, I think this statement when he says remember these things, he's talking about all those last four chapters. But for our sake at least, he's saying remember what I just told you from verse 6 till now. He's saying remember the faithfulness of your maker. Remember the faithfulness of your maker. You see, God wants us to be rememberers. Not forgetters, rememberers. He wants us to remember his worthiness of all praise. And he wants us to remember how he's more than sufficient for everything we need. But he also wants us to remember the absurdity of the idolatry. He doesn't want us to forget that either. He says, remember what I've just told you. So why would God say, remember these things? Well, he says that because Israel's a forgetful people. (laughs) And we are too. Like you could read from, from uh, in Exodus, in the book of new Deuteronomy, when it reviews it all, and, and Numbers is great. Just going from Judges, jumping into the book of Joshua, and jumping into the book of Judges, it says right after chapter one, and the people forgot. And the people forgot. And it keeps, every time it starts one of those new stories about a judge, and the people forgot. We do the same thing. We forgot, forget. And that's why God tells us Remember these things. These idols don't deliver on our promises, but God has delivered on his. God's delivered us from our sins. He gave us himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And over and over, I forget that, right? On Monday morning, tomorrow morning, maybe even this afternoon, I'm going to get all wrapped up in something else and forget about the gospel. And that's why God says we have to intentionally discipline ourselves to remember these things. But you might you also have to ask yourself, why does he want us to remember those things? It's not just because we're forgetful people. One of the reasons we see why he tells us to remember these things is in the middle of this verse. There's two parallel phrases, and you can see it with the way I've just kind of moved the text. It's all right in order. I just kind of indented it to help you see. Verse 21 says, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O oh, Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. When you read that kind of thing in Hebrew, it just sticks out like I've done it right there. It's just right in the center. I have formed you. God's saying, I have formed you. If you go back to verse 9 and go all the way back through that and look for the word formed, you're going to see that the man forms his idol. And God says, huh, why would you worship the thing you form? Like, it'd be like, Wesley and I like to talk about this. It'd be like, Wesley, you making a cool thing with Legos. And you, it's awesomeness. And you set it up here and you go, oh, oh, beautiful Lego God. (laughs) Why would you worship the thing you make? On the other hand... Doesn't it make complete sense to worship the thing that makes you? This I that is seeing everything right now upside down and somehow my brain changes it right side up. These tonsils that people cut out and don't realize that they need them to fight off infection. These, These bodies that did not evolve from primordial soup they were designed by a maker who's worthy of praise when you see the complexity of the human body you should go god you are awesome truly you should worship the one who formed you and god wants us to remember that he formed us not we formed him or our gods but he gives us another reason that text right there at the bottom right right you will not be forgotten by me. Now, this, this Isaiah forty four. So a little bit of Bible history. Normally, I'm in the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Israel's been come out of Egypt. They're coming in the land they prom- they're promised, and they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they worship idols. Fast forward about several hundred several hundred years, <laughs> and They're really just worshiping idols a lot. And God sends prophets over and over and warns them and says, if you do this, I will curse you. I will send you away as slaves. And Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is the prophet Isaiah speaking to Judah and saying, this is what's going to happen, and it happens actually in the book. They're sent off to Babylon. Now, can you imagine yourself being in Babylon? Maybe you can't. Let me help you. Let's say the Chinese take over the United States. And they start locking you up, putting you on a boat, and taking you to Timbuktu, and putting you in little prisons. At that point, you're going to be doing this. God... Have you forgotten about us? That's what Israel would have been thinking in Babylon. As slaves, not able to worship their God freely, they would have been saying, God, have you forgotten about us? And God says, remember these things I formed you, and I'm not going to forget about you. He would have said, I know how horrible the pits are that you have dug for yourself and how this idolatry of yours has brought you into this captivity you're in now and how it must feel like I've abandoned you, but I want you to know, Israel, I will not forget about you. And friends, God is saying the same things to us today because maybe as we walk through those idols that maybe in your heart, you're like feeling pretty lousy and you're thinking, God, why would I do that when I know you gave your son for me? But there's encouragement here, isn't there? This downward spiral of idolatry is a process of forgetting. It's a long process of forgetting about what's true. And God says, you may think this thing you love so dearly is going to give you happiness and satisfaction that you want. You think it's so much that you've forgotten that I, God, am the source of happiness and satisfaction. But I want you to know that I will not forget about you. I gave you my precious one and only son to bleed and die for that idolatry. And he says, I began a good work in you, and I will keep this work going until I return. I promise you that. I will not forget you. So what I want you to do, let's get real practical and apply this sermon right now in the text. In your notes, if you have one of these handouts, otherwise maybe on your phone, I want you to just take a minute to write down three things that you need to remember about who God is, and/or what He has done. Things that you know I need to not forget: this about God or about what He's done. Cue the pretty music. Awkward silence. Let me just read off a few things I said earlier in my text that may, if you're like, I'm not sure right now my brain. God is the one who can be relied on. He has never failed you. He sustains you. He gave you a heart to believe. He sent Jesus to save you. He promises to never leave you. He keeps his promises always. Now, I know if you're already still writing, I can tell you as a teacher, put your pencils down, that's fine, or keep writing. (laughs) God's given us these directions this morning. He says, revere the God of your salvation. We saw to recognize the craziness, the absurdity of idolatry, and he says, remember the faithfulness of your maker, but he has a fourth direction in this text that we have to see. We have to see it, and that is to return to the gospel of your salvation. Return to the gospel of your salvation. Look at verse 22. He says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud in your sins, like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The reason for turning away from the ashes of the idols is this, because he's blotted out your transgressions. He saved us with his own blood. He's cleansed us and purchased us as his own special possession. And this verse describes it like a mist. As quickly, it's like a fog. As quickly as the morning progresses, that fog dissipates. Right? You get up, especially over the cornfields, you see that cloud. And it's only an hour. The sun breaks out and it's gone. And if you would have walked up an hour later, you would have never known it was there. That's what he's saying. Your sins, when God looks at us, if we've become his children, it's like he doesn't even see your idolatry. That sin, where all he sees is Jesus' blood, perfect righteousness for you. And if you've never put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation... Today is the day. Today is the day that God's calling you to repent, to return, to turn to him, to turn from those idols that won't give you the happiness that you're looking for. You're chasing after things that will make you think they, think you think they will deliver you. But you're just running in the wind. Whatever it is that you're chasing, it will not make you happy. And God says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to him. Don't think, well, I've got time. You don't know when your time will come. Today is the day that Jesus offers out. and says, I am the living water. Come to me and drink. You will find lasting satisfaction in him. Forsake your sin and turn to Christ alone for salvation. But Christian brothers and sinners, fellow sinners and saints, when the Spirit got a hold of your heart and he gave you these eyes to see, He applied that blood of Christ to you and the Father made this legal declaration saying justified, that you are innocent in declaration. The verdict is done. But The thing is, is your heart, your body, it's still here. You haven't died yet. And that means from the point that he gave you that new heart to the point that he takes you home, he's doing this work in you of showing you the mess and unraveling that onion, the layers in there of, I've got that worked on, but now I find this next one, and I get that worked on, and I find another one. It's like a never-ending onion. That whole process of unraveling it and seeing you, you being able to see him and how he's that source of satisfaction and constantly turning back to him, that's what we call sanctification. (laughs) That's God's project on you, and he will continue to do that. He wants you, though, to not be satisfied with the idols. Are you satisfied? Are you content with your sin in your life right now, Christian? He says, you're spurning my blood when you do that. So if you've trusted in Christ and have put your faith in him, you're no longer called an idolater. You may do idolatry, but you're not going to find the New Testament calling you an idolater. Calls you child of God. Saying about that this morning, right? I'm no longer a slave. I am a child of God. My child needs to be disciplined, right? So, how does this work out? How do I turn from my idols? Paul, help me out here. I'm a mess. Well, there's the obvious answers, and these obvious answers are always the right thing but we also need some help sometimes with doing them. The obvious answer would be you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be on a regular daily basis reading your Bible and praying and asking for help. That's the right answer. I want to give you two helpful tips to help guide you in that. The first one is to talk. you may be like, what do you mean talk? Well, you need to talk to someone who will come alongside you and pray with you and for you. Sin loves to hide in the darkness. It hates it when you drag it out into the light. But that's where real growth is going to happen for you. Real growth begins when you drag that thing kicking and screaming out in the light. You talk to someone and say, will you help me work through these things? Help me understand how the Bible can apply to this. The second thing you need to do is read. And I'm not specifically talking about the Bible. I'm talking about books that will help you understand this part of the Bible that we're talking about in terms of idolatry. There's so many good books on this topic that I think help us think through practically how to address specific idols in our lives. And I've listed several on the back of your handout there. So if you didn't get a handout there, right there by that little on that podium pedestal thing as you walk out, I also have them up here. If you want to come and look and say, okay, which one would be best for me, feel free to come up there. But if it's like too embarrassing to come up because sin hoots are coming out in the light, I get that. (laughs) You've got my number. You've got Matt's number. If you don't, get our number. But it's not just your pastors. Each one of us that names the name of Christ is called to help each other walk through this. So find somebody and say, let's read this book together. And we can grow on this together. I've prayed today, prayed over today in this message that the Holy Spirit would show us what the idols are in our lives. And I've prayed that you would not be overwhelmed with a sense of your sinfulness. Because there's, a, there's a, a tendency towards that. Now, I preach on a message like this that's talking about sin, idolatry, to go away thinking I'm an awful, awful person. Well, we are. And that's what Jesus came to save us for, right? But there's hope in Jesus, and he's making us what he wants us to be. But we have to recognize that we do misdirect our worship. But what I want us to walk away with is an overwhelming sense of the greatness of God and the greatness of his gospel. It's so amazing that it would cover us and be able to say, these are my children, righteous as Christ. He sweeps us off our feet as we reflect on the glory of him, of him and his gospel. And that has got to be the power for us to say, everything else fails. All the stuff I chase after will fail. And my happiness is in Christ alone. And I have hope beyond this life, life eternally with Jesus Christ. So how do you respond when you think about the fact that I'm a mess, Jesus is great, what should be our response? Well, verse 23 says it all. Isaiah 44:23. 23. What's the word? I'm going to read this. You just tell me what the word is that you hear repeated at least three times. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. What's the word repeated? shout. So that means when we sing this song in like a minute here, in a second, I don't want to hear, I want us to sing, God, you saved my soul. And I'm so thankful to you for that. We have to revere this God of our salvation because he alone is worthy. We have to recognize the absurdity of our idolatry we have to remember the faithfulness of our maker and we must return to the gospel of our salvation, the one who saved our souls. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for this glorious gospel. I praise you because you are the king of the universe, the one who holds all things together. You speak and uphold all things with your powerful word. and You're the one who knows all things and can do all things You can speak and the mountains tremble. We revere you this morning. We recognize that you are the one who's worthy of all worship. And we also recognize that we do crazy things and find and chase after things that we think will do what you can do and we're just so wrong. So God, forgive us for chasing after that which will not make us happy. happy. Help us to be rememberers who remember that you are faithful. Help us to be ones who return daily back to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to contact Edgewood Church at 217-806-0527 or email info at edgewood-danville.org.